Okay, so here's how we'll start this morning. The way we always start, we're going to start with the young ones, start with our kids, let y'all know what the text is going to be about this morning, uh, what the sermon's going to be about this morning. So uh, some time ago, a church uh, had you know tons and tons of kids in the church, and they quizzed their kids. They gave their, their young ones a test about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's some of the answers that, that they wrote down. I want you all, kids, I want you to tell me if you can find the problem in these answers that these young kids gave. Okay, ready? Okay, this is from the Old Testament. One kid answered a question and said, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. What's wrong with that? What's they were created from the dust. Good. That was so, so good, Charlie. Okay, created from the dust, and they ate what they weren't supposed to eat, a fruit of the tree. It may have been an apple. We actually don't know. That's good. Okay, how about this? Uh, the first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. <laughs> was that the first commandment? No. One of the commandments was what? Don't eat that apple. Okay, good. Uh, how about this one? <clears throat> Moses led the Jews to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread without any ingredients. Who knows what unleavened bread is? Sanders. Oh, you look like you're raising your hand. Maybe you were thinking. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yes, Francis. Bread without yeast. So it just doesn't rise. So basically it's crackers. Okay. Uh, how about this one? The Egyptians were all drowned in the dessert. Afterwards, Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. There are a couple mistakes in there. Anybody catch one? They were drowned in the, the desert. Yeah, in, in, in the uh, this flood from the Red Sea. Good. So they were drowned in the desert, not dessert. Uh, and then Ma Moses went up Mount Sinai, not Sinai. Sinai is a bad thing. Um, how about this? <laughs> the, the seven... The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. What is the seventh commandment? That's close. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, husband, wife, you only for each other kind of thing. Uh, good. That's an important one. Uh, Moses, here's another one. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. They meant Moses died before he ever reached Canaan. Very, very good, Bly. Very good. Okay, Canaan. And then he says, then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. The battle of Jericho. Jericho is what some people take for iron if they have, they need more iron. Okay, how about this? David was a Hebrew king who was, ki who was skilled at playing the lyre. Not the lyre, the... Actually, I don't know how you pronounce it. Liar? Liar? It's an instrument, but he was a liar, too. How about this one? David fought the Finkelsteins. <laughs> Philistines. So close. Okay. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Not porcupines. <laughs> Sanders says yes. Uh, not porcupines, but... Concubines, which is uh, a wife who doesn't have any money. Uh, well, uh, really, that's what, a, that's what a concubine is. We'll, we can talk about that later. Another sermon. Okay, uh, how about this one? Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. 
No, Mary had an immaculate conception. Very good. That's awesome. Okay, Jesus is a miracle baby. Uh, how about this? John the blacksmith dumped water on Jesus. No, John the Baptist. Good. How about this? One of the possums was Matthew, who is also a taxi man. Apostles, and Matthew was a, not taxi man, he didn't drive a taxi, he was a tax man, tax collector. Good. Hey, good. Hey, last one. Jesus taught the golden rule, which says to do unto others before they do unto you. Is that the golden rule? No. But what is the golden rule? Very good. I, I, we heard I think all come together. Do to others as you want them to do unto you. Okay, so uh, treat others well. That was the golden rule. Okay, those are super fun questions, but they are not the most important questions in the Bible. And, and here's what we're going to talk about today is we actually need to always be talking about the super most important questions in the Bible. Now, here's one of those questions. Ready? Really, I, I want you kids, stay with me here. Where is Jesus right now? In heaven... Wait, wait, wait. see, so y'all yelled out heaven. Now you got to help me here. In heaven, Jesus lived like 2,000 years ago, and he died. So what do you mean he's in heaven? Because he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He is really in heaven. Y'all, in one of my seminary classes, my professor once asked us, hey, where is Jesus right now? And we all sat there like, that's a really good question. Yeah, he's in heaven. Like, he's literally, is he, is he just a spirit in heaven? No. What is he in heaven? A person with a body. He is body and spirit. He is literally raised from the dead, and he is literally in heaven right now, and he is literally watching over you. What does that mean? Here's the big question. So what? What does that mean for you, kids? Jesus is alive, and he's in heaven. What does that mean for you? Very good, Annabelle. We can go to heaven. But wait, but are we going to die one day? Yeah, we're going to die one day. Okay, and is our ultimate hope is just that our spirits go up into heaven forever and ever and ever? No. What's our ultimate hope? And how is our body also going to go to heaven? Our body's going to go into the grave. What's got to happen? That's what I'm talking about. Thank you, everyone. He's going to get your body out of the grave, and he's going to make it new, and he's going to put your spirit back in it. Resurrection. That's what we're talking about today. That is our ultimate hope. And because Jesus is raised, he is going to give us resurrection. That's the, that's the important stuff. Y'all, you're going to, kids, you're going to hear some crazy stuff today about a vision, uh, about a deep ocean. 
and there's uh, there's trees on top of the ocean, which you never see. There, you don't see trees in the middle of the ocean. And then you're going to see this guy mounted on a red horse. It's Jesus. And he's standing over the ocean. And then you're going to hear crazy stuff about this deep ocean turning into a lake of fire. And then judgment day. And then you're going to hear this stuff about death. And you're going to hear stuff about resurrection and heaven and new heavens and new earth. And all of that, all this vision and cool stuff is, it's the basics. It is all about the basics of Jesus living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, all to save us so that one day Jesus will, kids, he will get you out of the grave. That's our hope. That's what Easter's about. This spring, here's what we've been doing. We have been in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. We're still going to be in there for Easter. Uh, Zechariah comes at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the last books right there. For Easter, we're going to stay there, but we're going to get from the end of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. Uh, Whether you've been with us before or you are just joining us, it's okay. You are good to go because we're going back to the very beginning of Zechariah on the same page here. Let me just give you a little context for where the what's going on in the book of Zechariah as you jump into it. Israel had been taken into captivity for 70 years by Babylon, the great world power. Well, then another great world power comes along, Persia. And they defeat Babylon, and then they free the Jews. They say, hey, in our Persian Empire, go wherever you want. And if you want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that thing, go for it. You want to rebuild your temple? Knock yourselves out. So you get a group of Jews, some of the very, very, very poorest Jews, they go back because they haven't made a life for them in Babylon. They go back to Jerusalem. They hear the call of God to go back and rebuild the temple. And they go and they start doing it. And it's awful. Suffering persecution, opposition, everywhere they go, and they're looking up to heaven saying, God, what? Like, you bring us back for this? Like, where are you? And so God sends Zechariah to this people, and he gives them a series of visions to, to reveal to the people he is with them. And so we're in the first vision, and the first vision is the key vision. If you can get this first vision, you can get the book of Zechariah. So, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Then we're jumping to the end of the New Testament in Revelation. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, who's standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Well, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, to Zechariah, all, all of the major players, all of the major elements in the book of Zechariah, they're right here in verse 8. If you get this verse, you get the book. This, this verse that says, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. The rider on the red horse, he is a manifestation of the Son of God. Later in this vision, he is called God. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And it says, he, the rider, is standing among the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees are a symbol for God's people. Super specifically, uh, the myrtle trees are a symbol of the land of paradise where God's people dwell and where God dwells with his people. Okay, so Zechariah is given a vision of the Son of God as this rider on a red horse standing amongst God's people, the myrtle trees. Now, we went super in-depth about these symbols uh, at the beginning of our series. If you would like to hear more about those two, those two symbols, uh, go there. We go deep. And speaking of deep, that's where the red rider and the trees are. They're in the deep. It says, in our translation, it says glen, uh, but this word in the Bible, it always means the same thing, the watery deep. So in Zechariah, later in Zechariah, in chapter 10, verse 11, this same word refers to the depths of the Nile River. And then the 10 other times that this word appears in the Old Testament, it always refers to the depths of the seas. Same here. This vision, it is freaky, it is weird, because in this vision, Zechariah sees the Lord as a warrior, a rider on a red horse standing on the ocean, and he's standing in the midst of myrtle trees. It's understandable, modern, some modern translations think, well, that doesn't make sense. So they translate it as glen, as in like, well, it's got to be like a dried up ravine, because the way nature works, you don't see myrtle trees in the middle of the ocean. True. But this is a vision. And visions are like dreams. And dreams are not limited by the laws of nature, which is why we wake up and say things like, I just had the weirdest dream. All visions in the, in the Bible are weird. Okay? Okay. So, what does a weird vision of a mounted warrior in the midst of trees, in the middle of the ocean, what does that mean? When the symbols are not clear, when the symbols uh, and visions in the Bible are not clear, someone like an angel or, or even God himself in the vision, they explain the symbolism. But they don't explain all the symbolism, which they don't do here, because some of the symbolism is clear. We are supposed to get it. The watery deep symbolizes what it has always symbolized. It symbolizes the same thing. Most basically, it's a problem. 
The deep has always been a problem for God's people from the beginning, always. So uh, in the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God is there hovering over the watery deep, uh, and God must overcome these unbounded, watery depths if mankind is going to survive, if mankind is going to have a place to live. We're not going to do water world. Uh, so God must overcome these unbounded, watery depths to give mankind a place to live. So God separates the deep waters, and dry land appears. Now, the watery deep here at the beginning, it's not evil. It's not, it's, not, it's not a symbol for evil because God created the deep and God's creation is good. But it is a problem. When God creates the unbounded deep, he's not done with it, so it serves as a symbol of chaos where God must bring more order. He's not done with his creation yet. It's a symbol of chaos that must be overcome for God's kingdom to be inhabitable. So from the beginning, you see this revelation, from the beginning of the Bible, this revelation of the absolute total sovereignty of God over the chaos of the watery deep. It's a promise. It is a guarantee from the beginning that whatever conditions stand against God's people, no matter how chaotic, how big, no matter how unruly, those conditions might seem God rules. He overcomes and he establishes his kingdom and his people. And just a little later, this symbol of the deep, it evolves as a symbol because not, not too long later you get to the flood, like the flood with Noah, flood. God brings the flood on the world and, and what you have is the watery deep evolves as a symbol to mean not only chaos, now it symbolizes death and it symbolizes judgment because the deep flood that God brings, it, it brings death to the world as judgment for the sins of mankind. And it is a return. You get this flood across the world, and it's a return to the chaos of the unbounded deep at the beginning of creation. Only now the deep is, now it's the realm of the dead. But God is there again, and so this is a recreation as God brings Noah and his family in the ark safely through the judgment waters, safely through this passage of the flood waters of the dead deep to new life, new creation, new world order. Now, go a little farther in the Bible, most fresh on uh, the Jews' minds, the people of Zechariah, uh, the people that Zechariah is talking to, they hear this stuff and they think Moses and they think the exodus, and they think the parting of the sea. With Israel, comes to the comes to the sea, the, the Red Sea, and God parts the water, and Israel goes through, and Egypt's army that's barreling down on them, Egypt's army of chariot horses follows, and God brings down the watery deep, the water on top of them, burying them, it says, Exodus 15, in the deep. Same word as, as, it, as it's here in Zechariah. And then the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, looks back on Moses, looks back on the parting of the sea, and it describes the watery deep there as a symbol for the monstrous enemy of God's people. So you see that the, the symbol keeps evolving. 
that that it's a symbol of Egypt. Uh, it's a symbol for Pharaoh and his army. It's a symbol for this Leviathan dragon. It comes to be a symbol for Satan himself. So by the time, now we're back at Zechariah, by the time you get to the end of the Bible here in Zechariah, the vision of the deep symbolizes, you could say most basically a problem for God's people. It symbolizes all, everything that threatens God's people. It's chaos, it's death, it's judgment, it's evil. It's the devil himself. Zechariah and the Jews are rebuilding the temple in the middle of the deep of this world. For them, for, for Zechariah and the Jews, the deep is it's Persia. It's the chaos of their lives. It, it is the constant threat and the reality and the experience of death. And Zechariah's vision is for us too. As in we, we live in the deep. You know, we thought if we could just get back to the world that was before COVID, only to find on the other side of this thing, and we're not completely on the other side of it, but on the other side of it, we find more chaos and more death as you look around the world. This world is chaotic. It is full of death. And this world will be the untamable deep until Jesus comes back. But, like the Jews, we are supposed to see this red rider still standing over it all. There's a, uh, there's a writer, storyteller named uh, Joel Ben-Izzy, and he tells a story about when he was growing up in L.A., uh, when he was a little kid, and the only way he could get around gigantic L.A. and the suburbs was by bus. It took hours to get anywhere. And the buses were always hot, the air conditioners were fake, the windows were fake, they didn't roll down. Uh, and so one hot summer day, he's 12 years old, he's on the bus, going to see a friend, the bus stops, and uh, uh, he's the only one on this bus, and this older gentleman gets on the bus and sits down right next to him. <laughs> sits down right next to him, and the old man pulls out an orange, and he looks at Joel and he asks him, what do you think? And Joel says, I think it's an orange. Uh, and then the older man says uh, to Joel, uh, he says, yeah, yeah, it's an orange. And he says, hey, you know, I'm not from around here. And he has this very, very thick Jewish accent. He says, I'm not from around here. Uh, I came here after World War II. And he asks Joel if he knows about World War II. And Joel surprises the man. He's like, yeah, actually, we're learning a lot about this because Joel's Jewish too. And, uh, and, and so he's, he's wowing this old man with his answers. And, uh, and he says, well, do you know where I, did they tell you about where I was in World War II? And he's like, well, where were you in World War II? He's like, well, I was in uh, Auschwitz. I was imprisoned uh, in that Nazi concentration extermination camp in occupied Poland during World War II. And the old man asks, uh, when you learned about Auschwitz, did they tell you it was all black and white? And Joel says, well, I, I saw, I've seen a picture of it, and, and the picture was black and white, but I, I know the place isn't black and white. And the old man says, no, it was all black and white. Auschwitz was black and white. And Joel says, what do you mean? And the man says, uh, the guards wore black uniforms with black shiny boots, and you could see your face in the black shiny boots, and you'd see a pale white face. And on our skin, there were numbers. They're blue now, but when the Nazis burned them in, they were black. Everything was black, white and gray. The fence was black. The sky was gray. The snow would fall, and one day it would be white, and the next day from the ashes, uh, from the smokestacks, it would turn gray. And the food was gray. 
we ate gray watery soup. And it and uh, and one day while walking along the fence, he says, I looked down and I saw something that I had to stop and I had to stare at it because I could not believe what I was seeing. And I bent down and I picked it up, it was an orange. And I hit it as fast as I could because I knew if the soldiers uh, found me with it, they'd kill me for it. And I hid it in a crack in the wall of my cell. And that night, uh, while everyone slept, I took it out and I held it. And I was starving. And I wanted to eat it like an apple. I hadn't eaten anything but potato water for six months. I, 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 but I knew if I ate it, I, I would have nothing. So I rolled it in my hands. I scratched the orange and I smelled it. And as I smelled that orange and I closed my eyes, I wasn't in Auschwitz anymore. I was back in Palestine where my cousin grew oranges and it was the smell of freedom. But when I opened my eyes, I was back in Auschwitz. But I couldn't eat the orange. And then one day I gathered a small group together and showed them the orange and they all felt it. And they passed it around and they all smelled it. And then I very carefully peeled it. And I gave everyone a slice and we shared it. And I've never tasted anything so sweet. It was the taste of hope. And I kept the orange peels and I scratched them and I smelled them every night. And eventually the war ended and I was rescued. But that orange saved my life. That fresh scent, that sweet taste, that glimmer of color was just enough hope to keep that man going. And in the sea of deep darkness, there is a fiery red rider standing sovereignly over the dark deep. He is a glimmer of hope. And then hope arrives in the flesh. You remember when the disciples are out at sea? This is back, so now you're in the New Testament. Jesus has come. He's got his disciples, and they're out at sea. It's just the disciples are out there, and it's in the middle of the dark night, and a storm comes. But then they see Jesus walking on the water. And Jesus tells Peter, they yell at him, and Jesus tells Peter, okay, come, come, come over here. And Peter steps out of the boat, and he starts walking on water toward Jesus. But then, then Peter looks down at the sea, and he gets really scared, and he starts to sink. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him up out of the deep. This vision of Zechariah, it, it is haunting. But it's the rider on the red horse who stands over the deep who is truly terrifying in the vision. In the storm, it doesn't say, New Testament, the storm of the disciples, it doesn't say when the storm comes that the disciples are afraid. Like they're, the, the, they're fishermen, the wind is fierce, the sea is angry, but they are fighting. But when they see Jesus walking on the sea, that's when they get super scared. That's when they're terrified. They're more frightened of the one on the sea than the sea. And that should not haunt us, but that should haunt the chaos and the death that stands against us. At the end of the Bible, there is this image that we read about that haunts people in and outside of the church. And for many, it's, it's super offensive and it's a distasteful image because they don't, they don't know what to make of the symbolism. But now we do. It's an image of hell. It's the place of God's eternal judgment 
where God is fully present, but he's not present in his grace and favor, but he's present in complete and just wrath for evil. And it's the image of the flood of the watery deep from the beginning of the Bible, but at the end of the Bible, the watery deep has become a lake of fire. Because God is there in his fiery, wrathful presence against evil, and now it is evil that is being judged. It's the deep that is being judged. And the devil, and we think about hell, and we think, ah, the devil is there reigning as king. No, he's not. The devil will be there in judgment, in condemnation. Because the devil, evil, sin, death itself is judged and condemned, which is good news for us. The end of the Bible, it then tells us, it moves us from from that image to this other image where it tells us about the end of this world and the creation of of a new one, the new heavens, new earth. New Testament apostle John, he has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And again, like, the sea was no more, and we hear that, like, oh, man, that's a bummer. Like, I love the ocean. That's not the point. Uh, it, like, it's not just going to be land everywhere. Again, this is a new symbol that says in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more chaos. There will be no more danger. There will be no more evil, no wars, no crimes, no corruption, no more people hurting each other, no more people hating each other, no pandemics, no natural disasters, no death because death is defeated loved ones defying death defying death is not living as well as you can for as long as you can right now death is still coming defying death is coming back from the grave that, and that is the most fundamental thing of the gospel, that most important thing that we always need to be talking about, this thing of resurrection. One of the greatest basketball coaches ever was a guy named John Wooden. Do y'all know, uh, do y'all know the first thing he taught all his new players and his old players as they came back for the new season? How to put on your socks and your shoes. Literally. Literally, he took the first, the first practice to explain to them how to put on your socks and shoes. Not because his players were, were you know, morons. No, it's, it's this thing of, listen, the most important part of your equipment is your socks and your shoes. You play on a hard floor. Your shoes have to fit right. You have to get your socks on right. You can't have, like, to the point of like, you can't have wrinkles in your socks around the little toe or you'll get blisters. The best, one of the best football coaches ever, Vince Lombardi, the first thing he told his players every season, he held up this pigskin thing and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Because you do not ever graduate from the basics. You do not ever graduate from the fundamentals. You have got to know this and you've got to keep coming back to this most important thing that without resurrection, Death wins. And there are plenty of religions that do not believe in an afterlife, but, but promise paradise in this life. A kind of paradise of, of social harmony, you know, with human flourishing. This is Confucianism. This is New Age spiritualism. This is atheism. And there are plenty of religions that promise a, a future paradise, but it's a spiritual 
paradise, an immaterial spiritual thing. This is, this is Buddhism, this is Hinduism, this is Islam. But whether you are talking about a pseudo-paradise in this life or a purely immaterial spiritual paradise after this life, all the world and all the religions of the world, all they have to offer is consolation for suffering and death. Which in the end, that consolation has to admit that life is old, this life is meaningless. Ultimately, it's meaningless. And your physical, your physical suffering right now and your death, it's meaningless because we're headed either for non-existence or we're just headed for a spiritual existence. So either way, God's creation, it's a failure. And there's no justice. There's no answer to any of the physical horror that you now suffer. And no amount of denial and no amount of distraction uh, from death, uh, no amount of research into death, no amount of raging against death is going to change any of that. But Christianity, the gospel, does not offer consolation in the face of death. Christianity, the gospel, offers resurrection. The gospel promises new physical creation where heaven literally comes down, where heaven and earth are made one, where earth is heavenized. A new heavens and a new earth where there is eating and there is dancing and there is drinking and there are hugs and there are smiles and there's laughter and there's singing. It is not this thing of, oh, it's going to be the life you always wanted. It is life indescribable, unfathomable, infinitely greater, infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more good than anything you could ever hope for in this life. And here's, like, okay, so what for today and like right now and Easter later today? Here's a so what. True story, no spoilers. Everyone, if you've heard this before, true story. <clears throat> Years ago, it's a long time, this is like over 10 years ago, uh, when my son Jax was just two. He's two years old, we're living up in Boston, we're in seminary, uh, and we come out of Target, and it's pouring rain, the street, I mean, just downpour, the streets are starting to flood, uh, and when we, we get to the car, I notice, you know, car's right there, I notice there's this runoff from the flood of just this water kind of just streaming past us, uh, flooding into the gutter, but, but this drain, the grate has been uh, broken off, so it's just this huge hole with the, all this rushing water into it. I'm like, well, that is incredibly dangerous. Well, by the time I looked over from the drain back to my car, Jax has gotten behind me, skipping off, uh, and he gets caught in, in that runoff water. It sweeps him up off his feet and then sweeps him down into the drain. And my heart stops, and in the next moment, I throw myself down that hole, and I start to fall. And it, it like literally, it only could have been like a few seconds. But but this is one of those moments where you just have a million thoughts racing through your mind. And, and I'm thinking, it is so loud, and there's water everywhere. It is so dark, I can't see anything. I am falling way too long. No one is going to find us. And then it hits me. Jax is dead. Now I want to die. And then it hits me, I, I am about to die. Which means I'm about to meet Jesus face to face. 
and Jack's again in heaven. And then I wake up. And 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 it takes me about like it takes me like a minute. And I'm 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 in a full panic. I'm sweating. And the horror of it, the horror of seeing Jack's fall, the pain of him dying, it is, it is so heavy on me. And it, it takes about a minute for my heart to calm down. And then I realize what's going on. And I see where I am. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I'm in bed next to Ryan, my wife. And, and I jump up as quickly as I can. I run to the next room. And there's Jack's. And he's asleep. And he's safe. And he's in his bed. He's not dead. He's alive. But it is so real. Jax had died. But there with him in his bed, uh, he's been resurrected. And and I've been resurrected. And all, all the pain that I just experienced, it's healed. And more, more than healed, it has done something. My love for Jax is now different. It's been transformed because of all of that suffering, because of all of that pain. I'm there sweating all over and crying all over Jax as I hug and kiss him, trying not to wake him up. I had experienced the pain of losing him, but now that we are both resurrected, I have him back, and my love is different. It's transformed by that pain by that death, and it's just a dream. And loved ones, the real thing, it will be infinitely better. It does, but like, okay, wait, how, how, is, how is it possible? And how do we know it's possible? And it's because Jesus overcomes death as death overcomes him. On the cross, evil thinks it's defeated Jesus. On the cross, Satan thinks he's defeated Jesus. On the cross, death thinks it has defeated Jesus. But his defeat, is, 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 that's his victory. Because on that cross, Jesus takes evil on himself. And he bears the punishment of death. And not just, not just the punishment of death, like death, death. The punishment of the second death, eternal death. Jesus takes the flood of God's fiery judgment on himself. I mean, the best picture of this is, y'all, think of the ark and the flood. Jesus is that true ark. We are in the flood, but we're in the ark. Yeah, the water, the flood, the deep is over us, but we're safe in Jesus. And Jesus takes the brunt of the waves. He takes the judgment for us. And then what is there for us on the other side of that deep, dead, dark judgment it's life. We come out of the tomb. We come out of the ark. We come out of Jesus. Through Jesus, we get new life. I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is condemned for our disobedience. But then he is raised for his obedience. The Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people, but they all remained dead. But Jesus did not remain dead. And in his death, he has overcome our death because he died for us. And in his resurrection, he guarantees our resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he will get you out of the grave. And the question to us is, 
Listen, if you believe, if you don't believe, know that this is for you. And the question is, do you see the Red Rider standing victoriously over the deep? Like, do you see us, the trees, in the middle of the deep, and yet we are towering over the deep as our Lord stands with us in our midst? The first verse of the last chapter of Revelation says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing, and that's a strong, like, like flowing, running from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The dark, dead deep that would overwhelm and overcome God's people, it has not just disappeared in the new heavens and the new earth. It has been transformed. And it has become a river flowing from the throne of God, which means all of the evil and all of the loss and all of the darkness and all of the pain and all of the fear and all of the hatred you ever experience in this life, it will only serve to make the coming resurrection greater. Another pastor said it like this. It is one thing to say that God is with me right now and he is making me strong through suffering. It's another thing to say he is making me everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we we gather this morning to worship and to praise you that you have made us everlasting, not because of anything we have done, anything we ever will do, all by your grace that you've given this as a gift. Father, we pray that you would bless us to hold on to it. Father, uh, uh, for those that are here and maybe uh, they they don't believe, Father, give them the grace you've given us. Father, uh, bring them into your kingdom, not because of anything they've done or ever will do, simply by your grace. Bless all of us here to know that this is true, that it's for us. Lord, help us, give us faith to believe and to hold on to Jesus, to look at his cross and to look at his resurrection and to hold on to hope, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory, amen.